What's up, everyone? Welcome to the My Favorite Horror Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ackerman. Uh, there are some choppers probably in the background. There are uh, riots going on in the city of Los Angeles, actually kind of just uh, south of me. I'm in Hollywood, a few miles south on Melrose, and, you know, due to this, uh, the protests for George Floyd. So uh, hopefully everyone's safe out there. Uh, we have a badass versus episode for you today. It is screenwriters versus producers. This one will be endlessly inspirational to you all if you're looking for understanding into the secrets behind the mindsets of writers and producers and how they work together. Uh, between Buzz Wallach, Ralph Konefsky, Josh Miller, and I, uh, we've probably made over 100 movies, uh, not together, but you know, separately and sometimes together. Uh, before we get into it, uh, as a podcast listener, you can get the use the coupon code PODCAST at MyFavoriteHorrorMovie.com for 20% off of any of our signed books, or head over to Amazon.com and pick up the books there. Uh, and please uh, subscribe, click and all that to keep uh, me inspired to keep this going. So let's start off by touching base with pro prolific filmmaker Buzz Wallach, and then we'll add in badasses Rolf Konefsky and Josh Miller to face off in this episode's main event, Screenwriters versus Producers. And then uh, also just, uh, just announced after we had recorded this a few days ago, um, Josh is now going to be the writer of the new uh, Sonic the Hedgehog movie. He wrote the first one, and now he's writing the second one, so congratulations to Josh on that. It's great news. So I wish it was uh, the announcement happened after or before, but otherwise he wouldn't either. He wouldn't have been able to talk about it anyway, so we'll just leave it at that. Uh, proud of him, and uh, so let's, let's get on with this. Uh, screenwriters versus producers. Let's go. All right, so our first guest is a badass producer, director, and former director of photography whose credits include Downward Twin, which is currently streaming on Netflix, uh, Never Sleep Again, Crystal Lake Memories. His name was Jason. He got to do two Friday the 13th documentaries. Uh, Death House, Psycho Granny, and the upcoming documentary Analog Love. Uh, it's Buzz Wallach. What's up, Buzz? Hi. How's it going, man? What you what you been what you been up to in the past two months worth of quarantining? Uh, staying busy, doing a lot of stuff with my hands. I wanted to, uh, you know, make sure I was living it up uh, while stuck in quarantine. So, you know, just did a whole bunch of housework. Uh, but also, you know, I, I shot a short on in quarantine, which was fun. Really? Just uh, yeah, you know, like I was trying to keep busy, trying to write and just be creative. You know, you gotta have that 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 sieve to let all the demons up here get out into something. Um, yeah. You know, I just staying as busy as, as I can be. I, I, I run a, um, a thing called uh, an artist accountability group called Just Scare Me, in oh. which every, every two months uh, you have to direct a short horror film between one and ten minutes, or you owe the group $100. Oh, wow. Don't do it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, I got I to gotta do something, you know, and it's wow. not a competition. It is purely a let's go to gym do some weightlifting, let's flex the muscles, and just make sure we're constantly in a place of, like, doing something. Um, okay. And so, uh, you know, we I had a couple of people, once all this started, we were in our second round of the year, and I, I decided, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to give everyone a chance. You can drop out now, you know, mm -hmm. after signing up. You're, you're, uh, normally I'm like, no, you said yes, so now you're, you're, you're stuck, and 
you're going to go owe everyone a hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, uh, I gave everyone a chance to drop out and a few people did, but a lot of people were just like, no, 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 I need something to do. Mm-hmm. So they're just like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to shoot something. And so we have a, we're going to do an online screening, uh, ah. uh, through a website I found that syncs up stuff through Vimeo. So we're yeah. going to do it on, on June 6th since we can't. Oh, cool. Listen. Yeah, send me the info. I'll check it out. And and so what? What is the short? Uh, I'm. Just, I assume it's starring your wife, Mary. Yeah. Oh yes. yeah. You know, you're quarantining with an actor. You you might as well uh, utilize that, right? Yeah, yeah. And we had a we had a couple of friends that we had. Uh, you know, our quarantine circle, as they call it. Uh-huh. That, you know, that we've only seen like three or four people through yes. the entire two months. That's the only human, and that they've they've only seen us. So yeah. I was like, hey, you guys want to hang out and we shoot something this weekend? And so we, we shot uh, mine and another one of my friends, like, just at the same time, just uh, did it all in one thing. Um, okay, uh, cool. So, yeah, it worked out. It worked out really nicely. Uh, it's amazing what you can kind of figure out what you can do with literally just you and, like, one other body and and minimal lights and camera and just make it work. So it, it, it was nice. You know, we were yeah. very fortunate that we had the stuff to do that. Yeah, that's that's great to. I mean, you have to stay busy, and I mean, it's kind of now is the perfect time to do it. I mean, you're you're always busy doing something. I'm always busy doing something, uh, and so it's been really nice to just focus on me, and you know, I'm sure yeah. yourself. Um, yeah. So, just just like uh, just like you were joining with your friends, you know, probably the horror circle friends that we a lot of us both of us may know. Um, uh, what is it like this this community for you uh how everyone gets together and helps each other and and are, are there times that you uh you see someone and they're like why didn't you cast me in my movie or why didn't you have me doing this you know like some some people can get bitter doing this you know uh, or bitter seeing other people do stuff i mean kind of explain what it is in la with this horror community that we're that we're all involved in well i mean it's uh it's, it's a, that's a hard question to ask because uh, on one hand, in one respect, you know, I have this sort of mindset of, well, I don't want to be a part of any club that would have me as a member. Yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, uh, and then the other part of that is that, uh, you know, we are very fortunate that um, unlike other genres or communities where there is, uh, you know, so many more layers in, in horror the genre itself is the star, mm-hmm. you know, like obviously we have our Bruce Campbell's and, and, you know, uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's and stuff like that, you know, and yeah. those horror stars. But at the same time, like we will go, like we go see horror movies because they're a horror movie. Yes. Not because of anybody's in it. And, you know, I mean, obviously we'll go see something with the director, you know, whatnot. But a lot of the time, like if we like the director, that's kind of just the bonus. To yeah, okay. start into it being a genre movie. So it is cool that we do have, again, many of us all came from this place of, I mean, just speaking personally here, I, I came from a small town. I was the only kid that had a Freddy Krueger t-shirt. You mm. know, uh, it was really hard to get my friends to like watch Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Yeah. That was kind of like a thing. I, you know, I liked all this stuff. And then it was finding those letters to the editor in Fangoria magazine. And I was like, there's other people out there. And, and, uh, finding like, you know, way back in the day, uh, the Fangoria forms, Mm -hmm. which opened up this whole world of these new friends that really, that was like, Oh my God, I'm not alone. And that, 
know, that's something I, I cherish still, uh, just coming from a background of being that sort of lonely in my likes kid, uh, mm-hmm. that, that finding that community was really important. Nowadays, it's unfortunately that specialness has really lost its touch just because everybody likes everything. Everyone knows everything. You can get anything anywhere. There's nothing special anymore. And I sound like such a hipster saying that, but it does detract a little bit from that feeling. That being said, you do make, we've made so many great friends that, uh, you know, can be really supportive. You know, it can also be really cutthroat, but it does always make you strive to do the best you can because you want to impress your peers. Yes. All yeah. hard people to impress. Yeah, I mean we we and every, all of our all all of our friends have have seen all these all the horror films and they know them all and yeah. you, you know you have you have definitely have a lot to live up to. Uh kind of touching upon uh your your start uh and being this kid, uh, the only person that that liked horror films where you grew up, um, when you did you, I know that you wanted to get into the industry, you wanted to be a filmmaker, um, but was the was the ticket for you kind of starting off in journalism and ma- moving out to LA first, or did you? Because I know you were writing for a few websites, and that's probably you got you you started with the forums, and you're like, oh, I could probably just write for these websites or these you know or for fangoria or whatever that's how i first knew your name um and then you became a filmmaker now you're you know this is this is your life uh talk about that uh yeah i mean it was a it's a it's a weird sort of amalgamation of stuff i mean i never thought like ooh, i'll get into i want to be a journalist and then you know there's a brief moment where i was like i could be a journalist that'd be interesting but it really came down to the fact that i was just doing a lot of short films in my backyard with my friends um and then uh Steve Barton, uh, Uncle Creepy, yep. who at the time was the um, the moderator on the forums, and his second in command, uh, John Condit, um, yes. they both saw some of these shorts and really took a liking to me. Um, and uh, it, you know now they're two of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they really sort of took me under their wing and inter- and started introducing me to people when I would go to like a Fangoria weekend of horrors at like fourteen years old. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was those guys that really sort of took me under their wing and I, I owe my entire career to both of them uh, without them. I wouldn't have met anybody, anybody. Um, so I ended up, uh, living with John down in San Diego, mm. uh, we were roommates when I was in college and I started, you know, I was doing like reviews for dreadcentral.com. Um, before that I had done like a little bit of reviews and like video work, like interviews, mm-hmm. like just filming interviews for what was then called the horror channel and then that event oh, yeah. went you know boats up and uh, um uh it became dread central so i i got my start doing that and i was just doing red carpet interviews and uh little you know stuff and then i that that led me to becoming very very good friends with andrew cash who mm. was an editor and a journalist at dread central and we were we just kind of became the heads heads of video production and that's all we did and then that eventually led me into doing um, electronic press kit, EPK. Uh, yeah. And so uh, that to me was the really, like, what I was like, okay, this is my in. Like, I'm going in. Like Behind-the-scenes documentaries for films. That's, that's yes, yeah. yeah. So EPK is electronic press kit, and that's the guys that uh, guys and gals that go to 
uh, film sets and go, hi, what do you do? What's it like working with this actor? And everyone responds with, it's great. We love it. We're having so much fun. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as I hit stop on the you know record button, they're like, this is the biggest pile of crap I've ever been on. Yeah. <laughs> Rector, I'm, you know, probably going to shoot somebody. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's pretty, pretty intense stuff. Um, so that doing that the epk stuff that was my film school so i ended up dropping okay. out uh san diego state because i i was getting work in la like three you times. were already doing it yeah i started i i was uh uh commuting up to la and and uh my uh professor foley one of my film professors he i went up to him and i was like hey i gotta miss lab on thursday because i have a job going on a film set I can't even remember what movie it was, some low-budget movie. I have a job going on this film set, and I'm going to be running sound, camera, all this stuff. Like, I'm doing what you're going to be teaching in the lab. Um, you know, i just letting you know. And he was like, all right, well, I'm going to have to fail you for the mm. day. And I was like, what? Oh, yeah. wow. You're not going to be there. And I'm like, but I'm doing what you're teaching. Yeah. Why are you going to fail me? And he goes, you're not learning it from me. Oh, and damn. I'm in there in my head going, this doesn't make any sense. So I looked at him in the eye and I said, you know, I pay to be here, right? Yeah. Like, I, I'm paying you to teach me. And if I don't need you to teach me, why am I paying you at all? Mm -hmm. And he was like, I don't know. That sounds like you're crossed to bear. And I was like, right. <laughs> yep, it is. And I walked out and I called my, my parents, who are both educators. Uh, my dad's a photography teacher. And at the time, my mother was a, um, a theater uh, uh, teacher at UC Riverside. And uh, I was like, hey, what do you guys think about me dropping out and moving to L.A.? And they were like, uh, if you want, I, if you think that's a good idea, maybe just take a semester off, see how it goes. I was like, all right, I'll take a semester off. And uh, it's now been 12 years. 12 years <laughs> and no more semesters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, so now that now, uh, you and I have worked together, uh, we worked together on Death House first, and, and you helped me, uh, you helped connect me to a producer uh, that I worked two and a half years for uh, just recently. Um, so I, it's very much appreciative. I, I'm, I'm appreciative for that. Um, uh, where was I going? I, with this? I just gave him your name. You're the one. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, you know, I, but yeah, you made the connection. I, I called you and I asked, hey, is there any work out there? Because I, it was a, you know, like one of you, we all have those those moments where it's it, it gets really tough as freelancers. Um, so to have something like that uh, where I could work two and a half years straight and make 15 movies with someone, uh, it, you know, it was a great, it was almost like a, a Roger Corman uh, training uh, to just to know how to do a ton yeah. of low budget films all at once and yeah. juggle so much. It was, it was pretty awesome. So you get out of that and you kind of feel like you, you can do anything. Um, it's, it's true. I mean, and the, those, the, the lifetime movie arena is what Roger Corman used to be mm -hmm. in the seventies and eighties. And it's, it's the new exploitation genre. Yeah. You can turn them out. They sell, they, they're out there and there's some fun stuff. Like I, you know, if you like that, if you like flexing that type of muscle, uh, you can find some real uh, good gems, some oh, of which yeah. I've made. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah Everyone wants Psycho Granny. It's on Lifetime, right? Yeah, now. Psycho Granny on Lifetime. It's always playing. It's always playing. Uh, directed by our friend Rebecca McKendry. Uh, yeah. So now, uh, one more question before we bring in the, the other guys. Um, mm -hmm. uh, now that this, uh, we're trying to get out of this whole quarantine situation and, and deal with COVID as a as a as a this powerful virus that uh, is a danger to us working together. 
Um, have you, have you, what do you think about the, the new possible protocols that the industry is presenting to us in order for us to get back to work? Uh, and how do you think that's going to affect independent film? Uh, and how are like low budget films going to be able to adhere to all of these new guidelines, uh, you know, and how will it work on set? What do you think? Um, I mean, look, it's, uh, it is a complicated situation. Um, this is my personal thoughts on it. Um, and, and, you know, this is not by any means uh, law or anything like mm-hmm. that. Just kind of what I've been thinking about. Cause obviously as a producer, I, my, my number one concern is people's safety yep. and, and making sure people are taken care of. So the biggest thing that we have to figure out and unfortunately is the slowest thing, uh, always in the industry is insurance. Mm-hmm. What is the insurance going to be, you know, and, and how do you safely insure, you know, what happens? And so a big thing in freelance uh, filmmaking is that, you know, sometimes you have to come to work sick because if you don't go in that day, you're going to get replaced. And then if the guy or girl that is replacing you for that day is better than you, you're not coming back. Yeah. Or you so, might not even have the knowledge or you might be the only person with the knowledge to do that job on that day. And you correct. basically have to come in. Correct. So there has to be certain insurance policies in place in order for uh, this to work. And a lot of that it just is going to become like, if you're sick, it's fine. You're going to get paid for the days you're out. Get us a doctor's note when you can. And, you know, that's that's what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, uh, and then you don't you're not in fear of ever losing your job or being laid off because of that. You're just mm-hmm. like. Yeah, I, I have to, you know, and if your actor gets sick or your DP gets sick or, or your director gets sick, you have the ability to go to insurance and say they're sick. Like we have to take insurance debt. Like we're that that's it. You know, and there's already stuff yeah. kind of there, but insurance always takes the longest to catch up to the rest of everybody else. Um, that's the only way uh, you're really going to find true solves because just, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I can't really predict what the virus is or isn't going to do. Um, what I do know, though, is that uh, film sets are chaotic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you and and viruses are chaotic. So yeah. you can social distance as long as you want. We could all be wearing masks. We could all be wearing bubbles, you know, and, and shooting with only two people. Uh, if someone gets sick and they get infected, that, that's it. You know, everyone's sick. Like, that's just yeah. what's going to happen. So, you know... That to me is like we we kind of just we have to get to the the last part of it first and then take the precautions, you know, mm-hmm. because we can take those precautions all day long. We have no idea if they're going to work or not. You know, yeah, it, that's true. There's always going to be a percent chance that something's going to go wrong. You do the best you can. So that's why I for me, I want to solve this end first and then work our way back to the starting position in terms of your other question, your other question about like how this is going to affect, you know, film. Um, I do think it's actually, it's, it's going to hurt and help, uh, one, it's going to, as a producer, it's going to thin the herd in terms of, uh, the amount of product out there to sell. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't know, I don't know, Christian, if you've ever been to AFM, but oh it, yeah, yeah, it's 30 movies with, uh, Danny Trejo's face on it. Yes. Um, and so you're just competing against like all these movies that are the same type of movie, you know, and it's just, it's a crowded market. Yeah. You know, back in the day, we could sell to, you know, the uh, Japanese film market, foreign film market, and you could sell one movie for 50 grand. And it mm-hmm. would be like, oh, wow, great. Got, that's one market. Now you're lucky to get five grand for like three movies in a package deal. Yeah. You know, yeah. same thing with like Netflix and all that. So that's going to help independent producers a lot 
is that you know if you can afford to make the movie and and do it right and keep everyone safe suddenly now you're one of the few people with content mm-hmm. yeah that, that hopefully that's it you know you always you mm-hmm. like the people that say oh i hope there's an earthquake in in la again so they can thin out the traffic there's too much traffic you yeah, have another well, or yeah. that'll help the housing market <laughs> but well, I, I mean it's a terrible thought that uh, but um that's kind of the reality of the situation is that some people are just gonna be like, you know what, this really screwed up my life. I need to go back to Minnesota and just live with my parents again and kind of refocus what I, what I, I need to do with my life in order to, for it to be stable yeah. because I mean, this look, is an unstable business. It, it's very unstable without a pandemic. Going on. So yeah. for me, I, I always just kind of look back on history and see, okay, what happened in history and what can we learn from that? And the biggest lesson that everyone should be kind of thinking about uh, just in terms of like, you know, independent film and where we're going from now, um, is that uh, after World War II, you know, we had in America this giant economic boom, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people point to it being, oh, it was these policies and and this thing that the government did or like, you know, this bill that was passed that made this big economic boom possible. And, um, and it's not any of that. What happened was is that the entire world burned down. Mm-hmm except for the United States. So if you have a street with eight factories all making shoes mm-hmm. and everyone's buying, you know, and you have to keep the cost down and all that, you know, you have to competing with these, you know, if you're one of these factories, you have seven other factories to compete with making shoes. If seven out of eight of those factories burn to the ground and now there's only one factory making, mm-hmm. they're going to do pretty well. Yeah. That's what happened yeah, to true. us. So with this going on and, like you said, the thinning of the herd, you know, I don't like using that term because it's sort of morbid. But yeah, yeah. Um, this does give a lot of power back to creators. You got a camera, you got a lighting kit, and you live with an actor, and you can just do it. Go yeah. make a feature. Now yep. you have content. Now you can sell it because suddenly the, you know, factory that was just churning out pieces of crap that was just being, you know, oh, yeah, buy it, buy it, buy it, whatever. No one cares. No one cares about the story. No one cares who's in it. Just sell it, sell it, sell it. Now those are a little bit harder to make. So now a little bit more care goes into it. And now the creator has a little bit more power to be creative. Yeah. And that's going to be very, very helpful to independent filmmakers. Yeah, well, uh, it's uh, we're going to see how, how this whole thing goes down over the next few months. So, yeah, uh, I, I could be complete uh, full of Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I... Don't no, listen. It's, a, it's I don't understandable. Know I, mean. I get exactly what you're saying, and that's those thoughts are in my head. So let's uh, let's bring on Josh and Rolf and um, and uh, and and start our, our the main event. Sounds right. good. I love these guys. All right, everyone on the screenwriter side, he's the co-host of the podcast "Best Movies Never Made," the host of the film screening series here in LA called Friday Night Frights, and also one of the writers of a little film that came out earlier this year. It only grows $300 million worldwide, which is called Sonic the Hedgehog. What's up, Josh Miller? How's it going? Hey. Also, we have one of the most prolific filmmakers on the planet as a writer, director, and or, and or producer. He's made more movies than I can assume he can count, including Nothing's Out There, The Black Room, Art of the Dead, Automation, One in the Gun, Nightmare Man, and he's also one of the only writers that I know. He's one of one writers that I know. That can write a script in three days. Let's welcome Rolf Konevsky. What's up, Rolf? Hi, how you doing? <laughs> I'm excellent, man. So, um, 
How, how have you guys been doing? Like, let's start with you, Josh. Like, what the hell have you been doing during this quarantine? Uh, just writing uh, and not leaving my house. So, which good. when anyone who's a writer knows, when you're writing is a lot like being in self isolation. So, exactly. To a certain extent, my life's not a whole lot different than it would have been anyway. <laughs> Yeah, just no movie theaters. Yeah, I can't go to the new Beverly, so that sucks. Yeah. And, and Rolf, how about you? How are you keeping busy? Yeah, I've been trying to write. Uh, been, I got some assignments, and I've uh, been doing some spec stuff. And uh, I'm now, uh, I was in post-production on a movie before this whole thing hit, so it just started up again. So I'm now getting notes from the producers and trying to lock this picture, uh, which is frustrating, but I'm hoping it gets done soon. So. And what's that film? Uh, it's called Pool Boy Nightmare. It's a Ooh. lifetime thriller. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's a great title. So yeah. into it. Is yeah. the Pool Boy the nightmare or is the... Yes, uh, the Pool yeah? yes. yeah, it's not the, I, the my homeowner. My title was going to be Dangerous When Wet, but uh, they went Ooh. for Pool Boy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Lifetime always wants to change the titles. We've all yes. done them. I don't know about Josh, but we've all done them. It's kind of the Rod Foreman film I, school now. I've heard a lot from Buzz. How many titles did Psycho Granny... Go through well, again, but Psycho, Psycho Granny had one title when we oh. shot it, which was Granny's Home, and we mm -hmm. no, it had it had two. It was like Granny's Home and the Grandmother because it was basically just a riff on the stepfather, and uh, then and then you know obviously when you get it to Lifetime they just go oh we'll just name this I don't know something Nightmare or Psycho Blank or whatever, but then they 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 sent it back to us like oh yeah we're retitling it to Psycho Granny and I just kind of looked at the email and was like. You done good, Lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> well done, Lifetime. That's a good title. I, I'm, yeah. I'm totally fine. Their their series of Psycho Blank, I think, is their best run. The Blank it, Nightmare, not so much, but Psycho Blank is always. It's always one. rough. Like once you hear the final title that you're gonna, they're gonna give you, and I mean, I've had some some stinkers of titles that they've given us, and we're like, man, the original title we we had was so great. But you know, it's it's their 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 spot, their they channel. Named, they got to do it. They named mine Twin Sanity, and I was like, ah. <laughs> Twin Sanity. I wanted to call it Separation Anxiety, and no, everyone uh, was like, too heady. Ah, so, that's a, yeah, it's a good yeah. title. It doesn't like, work yeah. for Lifetime though. Probably not. Maybe like it would. I think it's yeah. Uh, Josh, what are you writing? What is what, what you 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 just announced something? It was on on uh, in the news a few months or a few weeks ago. Yeah, we're writing something that hasn't been announced, so we can't really talk about okay. it. Uh, but then the thing you're talking about is called Violent Night, which is uh, <laughs> R-rated Christmas. They're calling it a heightened thriller, which made everyone think it's a horror movie, but it's actually an action movie. Awesome. Really? It's so just a, a very title. strange action movie. Vi you better, somebody's better be singing Violent Night, right? I hope so. I want a really creepy version of Carol of the Bills in there, but... Ooh, yeah, yeah that'd be great. Any Christmas action horror genre movie needs a creepy version of Carol of Bells. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, uh, let's 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 start off that we're doing this screenwriters versus producers. Uh, I I should have mentioned that uh, that Josh and Rolf are going to be on the screenwriter side. Buzz and I are going to be on the producer side. We're going to go head to head and, and discuss all these issues that we that we face. Why is it uh, got a verse dealing yeah. with each <laughs> other? work with them it is odd yeah yeah well you know uh that uh, you know that's a, a title it's a title that uh, sells just like uh 
a separation anxiety, right? <laughs> Psycho, Psycho Granny. Or screenwriter. Yeah. Psycho Twins. <laughs> so, uh, you know, let's start off with kind of the basics. Uh, uh, with Josh and Rolf, let's start with Josh. Uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of difficult jobs on Earth. Uh, and, and, and writers can say, oh, yeah, my job is really hard. Some say that it's easy. Some people think it's easy to be writers. What makes it so difficult being a screenwriter? Um, I'd say the difficult part is that it's one of the few, like, important positions or really any position on a movie. And obviously TV and movies are very different for writers. But for feature films... It's one of the few jobs where they can keep adding more people in. <laughs> uh, like editing is a little bit the same. It's not quite the same. Like, cause your average large movie usually cycles through many writers. It's still a little unusual to fire an editor and hire new ones, even though they'll, they will cycle through, but other positions to think about it, like how many movies did they just be like, oh, yeah, let's hire a bunch more costume designers or let's get some more uh, composers in some here. Directors. We yeah, need let's more get some directors. more directors. Um, and so I think that's part of why writers get kind of the rep for having a chip on their shoulder. But it's because there's when a movie starts out, it's like you're super important. And then on some projects, all of a sudden you turn it in and it's almost like you found the script in like a dumpster and you're like, hey, look what I found. And they're like, oh, thanks. Uh, and then you're like, yeah. I have some ideas. And they're like, why do we care what you think? You're just the guy who found it in the dumpster. Get out of here. Yeah. We're going to give it to some other. Like, we're going to give it to the trash man over here. Yeah. He's going to take it. And he's going to throw it in another dumpster for somebody else to find. And we got this guy over here who's more famous than you. So we're going to pay him 10 times what you made to write uh, to ruin the script. Yeah. Or, or we're going to pay him 10 times to just put his name on the script. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and you take an associate producer credit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ralph. 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 How is it difficult for you being a screenwriter? I, it, it, writing is easy for you because you must. You always have like 60, 70, 80 scripts waiting to be produced. Well, not that many, but um, I, yeah, I write. I write a lot. Um, well, there's two things because I'm a writer director as well. So the there's the films when I that I write and direct. Obviously, you have more control over the whole project. So all the stuff that I've done that I've just written, and, and there's been more stuff that I've written that I haven't directed that have been that's been made, that uh, that's where you kind of, as a writer, you, you have your vision, but it's never going to be your vision, and you just have to kind of step back and realize, you know, the old uh, the old thing has been if that you write a script, if at the end of the movie you can identify three scenes that you wrote, you should be happy, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the thing. I've I've been luckier and unluckier in certain places about that, but. You just sort of distance yourself from it and say, look, they're going to do what they do with it and uh, hope they don't destroy it totally. Um, I, I, I was actually very pleased on a recent movie I wrote. I wrote a romantic comedy uh, called Royal Blossom that was shot in Bulgaria earlier this year, just before everything shut down. Mm-hmm. And um, I wrote that script. and They wanted kind of like a 30s, 40s romantic comedy. And I went back and I did this one scene that was a total homage to like pillow talk where they do the split screen uh. where they have a conversation and they do it. And like, nobody does that anymore today. So I wrote in the script, you know, that this split screen, because of the way the conversation was developed, it, it all is two conversations overlapping and it's very complicated. Mm. And when I talked to the producer, I, I said, um, I said, what do you guys think of that scene with the, they said, oh, we love it. We loved it. I said, did you understand it? 
You know, and they're like, oh, yes, yes. I said, the director understand it? I said, because this scene, if it's done right, could be great. And if it's done badly, it could be the worst scene in the movie. Uh. <laughs> and and I, was, I couldn't believe when I saw the cut, they, it was actually, they did it right. They, they pulled it off. So I was delighted about that. So every oh, now and then, get lucky. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. And so, Buzz, as, as a producer, you know, you know, people probably think it's easy, right? Oh, what is it? There's just a, and, and it probably is easy, easy for many producers that get uh, credited on films. They might be the hairstylist of Mel Gibson uh, that that connected that that per, that that actor to money or whatever, or the producer, you know, well, what, what Josh uh, said, or an agent. What Josh said about it's one of the only, you know, ah, uh, writers, yeah. you can add a lot of writers on and on and on. Uh, yeah, same is true for producers, pal. And they yeah. do even less. At least with the writers, they're like, "Oh, I did like a you know a scene. You know, I'm Milius, and I did the USS Indianapolis scene." With producers, what Christian said is 100% true. Literally, someone could be like, "Yeah, you know, I uh, I farted near Mel Gibson last week, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and the script fell out of my pocket. And now he wants to do it, so uh, I'll take the producer credit." And then you end up getting one of those those shared credit pages where it's just, "Oh, a lot of producers were on this," and that and I think everyone here will agree that the more writers and the more producers that are on a single title card, uh, the worse the movie is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very, yeah. very possible. Um, well, I always like when, uh, uh, and granted, sometimes they are producers like Tom Cruise or mm -hmm. Mel Gibson yeah. back when he was still making movies, but I like whenever you just see the actors' names pop up as like an executive producer and you're like, yeah, they just had that put in their contract. They didn't. Oh, yeah. They didn't do yeah. anything to help produce that movie, and, and yeah. that's kind of a way to bury bury money in different ways too. Yeah. So they, you know, well, you uh, know it, it is it is one of those things where uh, I mean, a lot of that has to do with the way award systems are set up, and mm -hmm. it's not so much just like the credit it, as as like if the movie wins wins Best Picture or a Golden Globe or whatever, um, or even an Emmy in terms of TV, um, uh, the actors don't get that award you know they win an acting award they get that but if brad pitt produces 12 years a slave brad pitt probably knows he's not going to win best actor for his little bit part in 12 years a slave but it has a shot and you know and it's obviously his company so he wants to make sure his name is on there as an executive producer so that when it inevitably wins best picture yep. brad pitt also gets to accept that award and share share the gold if you will so that's a that's a big reason why a lot of movies have i mean obviously there's some actors that are just like I want the vanity credit. Give it to me. Mm -hmm. There's also the actors that are smart, like Tom Cruise and Mel Gibson and, you know, a couple others that are like, no, 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 give me the producer credit so that I can bring in the people I want to bring in. And I actually have power to be like, no, this person sucks. We're not hiring them. Like, we're hiring this stunt team. We're hiring these guys. You know, yeah, we're exactly, yeah. this, th th you know, th these women, like, just across the board, they're allowed to be able to do that. It's a lot, a lot of, it's just, Contracts and stuff is so, so complicated. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> I'm writing my own contract for a project right now, so it, it, oh, it took me about a day and a half to, to really get it right. Um, so Just Buzz, hire a lawyer. Just hire one, Christian. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, so a lot of people uh, don't really know that uh, what a producer does, Buzz, but, uh, you know, in TV, the producer, yeah, I know. I would, it, there's so much to learn, but... Uh, in TV, the executive producer is the boss. They are, they're the ones that make the final decisions. When it comes to uh, independent filmmaking, horror films, and all that, I kind of explain just in a nutshell just a couple of the, the roles of producers and, and what they do so people have a un greater understanding of what's going on here. 
Oh boy. I know it's a it's a loaded fucking question, but I said nutshell. I said nutshell. People, people should pay me for what I'm about to say. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is the simplest terms I can break it down to. Executive producer gives the money, producer finds the money, line producer decides how to spend the money. Yeah. Hey, look at that. There you go. What about that an associate producer? What's an associate producer? Uh, that's no, the guy it. who's friends with the movie star <laughs> that's in your movie, who yeah, maybe yeah. got them to read the script in the first place. That's what I always think of as yeah. the or, or found the location. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, 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 I've remember, given that away before. Don't forget uh, here's, the here's, uh, nutshell. Here's the nutshell. Right line from uh, State in Maine. Yeah. The David Mabbitt one about associate producer. Tell tell the guy he can be a associate producer. Let his, his horse can be associate producer. <laughs> <laughs> Associate producer is someone that knows someone. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. So uh, on some of the recent films that I was doing, I decided to take associate producer credit, even though I was the actual line producer, because I was making so many movies and I was seeing the cast credits roll up the screen. And I saw a day player who was on set for two hours each movie fucking day player above my name and I was the one that did the most work on the entire film besides my boss producer a and I'm like you know what day player? no yeah because the cast was before the line producer in, in the credits to how they were laid out and I started getting really tired of it I'm like wait a second I'm, f I'm fucking still slaving over this goddamn movie and like I want to get on the fucking front credits so I was like alright give me an associate producer credit and let me just be on the front credits for once you know so that's right, well, why I took a lot of associate producer credits over the past, you know, year so or so. Next time, next time you're tempted to take the associate producer, even credit. though I was the boss on set, you know, the, yeah, yeah. You know. Don't, don't take the associate producer. All you take is a co dash producer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. So, but we already had a co producer. I couldn't take her slot, so I had to. You couldn't take another. It was political. Yeah, I couldn't. Uh, yeah. Well, the co producer credit is always the political gimme credit, like yeah. in that. It is like associate producers, someone that usually uh, probably didn't do a lot. They knew a guy who knew a guy. Yeah. Uh, whereas the co-producer is like, this person did a lot. We should throw him a bone, but definitely not like a producer bone. So like yeah. maybe co-producer. Yeah. Not the important, but the important. Produ enough. The producer bone is the one that you really want to hold on to and like hoard to yourself. Don't let anyone get it because that's the main one. That's the main one that hey man, really it's a hard job. Yeah, and it's and people don't really understand how difficult it is. So well, uh, it also gets complicated because sometimes more than one company is producing something. Uh, yeah. So it's yeah. kind of like where do you draw the line on who really is a producer, who isn't? Because um, I think even a further clarification of the difference between the problems for writers and producers is that producing is such an ambiguous thing for that credit. Like really there should be a bunch of different, we should invent new titles to cover a yeah. lot of the different areas of producing. Um, well, we got time. Like, Josh. Let's do it. I'm, I'm, well, I mean I'm, like, and especially even from like just a writer perspective, it'll be so funny to like go visit a set of a movie where you've met all the producers and then you meet somebody and they're like, I'm one of the producers. And I'm like, no, you're not. What? <laughs> Who the hell are you? I've never met you before. How are you one of the producers? And here you are standing in Video Village introdu introducing yourself as such. Uh, yeah. But again, that might be they maybe like helped find the book 
the movie's based on. Like you never even know where in the process that person did their quote unquote producing contribution. Yeah, I mean, they you know they could have been uh, the one that shepherded it for ten years and then just couldn't be on set for this time, the time that it was yeah. allowed to be shot. Or they, you know, or they owned the rights; they were the option. Yeah, they just wiped their hand. I mean, it's just almost it's even more complicated in TV where the director of the pilot episode is an executive producer for the entire run of the series. Yeah. Like and they get paid for every single episode. Like that, that's it. You know, like Mick G, uh, uh, the director, Mick G of Charlie's angels, Terminator salvation. He is an executive producer on supernatural mm. because he directed the pilot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there, and there's like a tiered structure. Mick like it, <laughs> after every episode he gets paid and it probably gets lessons after a while, but because he created the look of the show, Yep. He gets he gets paid through the. Well, then it's the, the same show. for like if Blumhouse produces something like a TV show, Jason Blum is going to get an executive, yeah, executive, usually like what one of the last ones. But as far as like actual work on the series, he may not have had. He may not know it exists. Yeah, exactly. Like he, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> they do so much stuff, and there's certain things that I'm sure he is involved with, and other things that's just kind of like it fell under the umbrella. And that's just part of how his deal works. Yeah. So, so touch it upon that, Josh. Uh, you, 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 you wrote a big studio film with a lot of players and a lot, you know, a lot of like you have studio heads, you have Sega, you have uh, producers, uh, you have money people. Um, what did you do as a writer to uh, to address everyone's concerns? And and was there that one person that you had to answer to? Uh, that that you could trust, uh, and they trusted you. That you that you said, okay, all the final decisions that are being done with what I do, I'm going to be filtering through that person, and then they're going to filter it through the rest of the people. How how did it work? Yeah, well, we uh, on that project sometimes will happen is you have what I don't know what other people call it. I always call it a point producer, uh, which. For us, there was a billion different producers and executives, but our primary producer uh, was Neil Moritz, and his company, Original, yep. was producing it. But Neil Moritz is a super producer, which, yep. for those who don't know, means that, much like Jason Blum, he is making five billion different things of varying sizes, mm -hmm. from the Fast and Furious movies down to like slightly smaller movies. Um, so he obviously doesn't have the time to work on it. So he has a guy at his company for us was a dude named Toby uh, and he was our point producer. And I think probably point producers are just down to your personality. It's like how much they really want to be involved. And Sonic was something he spearheaded at the company. So he was super involved. He's like, I'm going to be there for all the decisions. And so he was the one who was always filtering everything from the studio or the other producers through us. Um, mm. And sometimes that's really annoying, either because the producer is incompetent or is being uh, duplicitous. And in some ways it doesn't matter uh, which is which, which is that they'll be getting a bunch of different notes and not necessarily tell you where the notes are coming from. Cause as a writer, you know who you have to listen to yeah. if the head of, Paramount Pictures gives you a note, you need to listen to that. If just one of the other producers who aren't that important gives you a note, maybe you can just be like, yeah, we'll try to address it. Uh, but Toby was really good at like, 
he just wanted the movie to be good. So he would always be like, we need, who cares about that note? Oh, we don't need to listen to that person. Don't worry about it. Uh, oh, that's, such a, that's such a good, like, uh, development producer, creative producer, because I've worked with them before, too. Like, just as, like, a one producer to another. Mm-hmm. And then they're just like, let's dogpile all the notes. And yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, dude, we don't need to listen to the the kid that works in the office that read the script to do a cover sheet for. Like, no one cares that he's confused of why the main girl is eating nuts on page 10. Yeah, yeah he's, he's probably never made a movie in his life. Probably didn't even yeah. go to school. Well, you know, one thing, for it, you know, I feel like it takes some getting used to before you kind of realize it, if you ever realize it. But there's so much politics going on at these companies, production companies or studios. And eventually you realize if you have three executives, because at first it's confusing of like, why are they giving notes that contradict each other? Each other, yeah. But you realize that because possibly none, none of them outrank each other or they just don't want to get into arguments because they're also working on so many projects because it's always just like, why don't they get into a room together and talk about this before they give us their notes? Like this note, I can't do both these notes. These are two different things, but it's because they don't want to get into it. They don't want to do the extra work to talk amongst themselves. Yeah. It is people justifying their jobs. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It, it, the the amount, and I, what's funny too is Josh is that you've done it long enough. Now, you know exactly what that note is. Yep. And I, I see it all the time. You get the motiv- motivation behind it. You have to understand the psychology behind the note. Yeah, no, no, no. You know? A lot of times I've been in development and I'm fielding uh, notes, you know, from a company and then I'm talking to the writers, you know what I mean? And, and I, I have to, like, represent the company and make sure all that. The amount of times I get a note from somebody that's just kind of like, oh, is this in scope? And I'm like, that, like, them getting their hair wet? in the shower <laughs> yeah that's in like i ah, fuck off like you're just you needed to like you skimmed it before the, the conference call and you saw that and went that's weird out of context let me just write that down and you know my job as a creative producer or a development producer is to be like thanks yeah that <laughs> yeah. means nothing there are people sitting in offices around the country or and around the world that uh need to justify their jobs and when a script comes in, if they don't say if it's a perfect script and they don't say anything about it, then why the fuck are they sitting in that office? And there's no, there's no such thing you, as a perfect script. Everyone knows that. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's no perfect script. So then uh, even if it's a, a masterpiece of a script, except uh, for David Mamet's 1998 script, The Edge. Which is a perfect script. Wow. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, but they they still need to. Uh, they want to justify like, oh, you know what? That little moment in that movie, I I was the one that put that in there. I forced them to do that because it was my girlfriend's name or whatever it might be. So, you know, that's 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 the kind of shit you have to deal with. It's just a lot of people that have never really made a movie. They've never scheduled a movie. They don't. You know, it's, they're just people sitting in offices. Well, and it is important once, as I was saying, once you can identify the, I have to write some notes, otherwise, what are they paying me for? And what yeah. are the real notes? Because of the the ones that, what are they paying me for? You really can just ignore. And they yeah. probably won't even remember that they give that, which was another trick that I eventually had to learn the hard way, was that it used to like, it offended my ego if someone would give, and I'm sure, Rolf, you get this too, where they give a note of like, I feel like this we need this needs to happen in the scene. And you're like, that does happen in the scene. Oh, that that's thing the you're worst. saying 
you want to be in this movie is literally in there. And I used to like, I, it, I was so offended. I, I wanted that acknowledged. And eventually I was just like, it yeah, just don't say anything. And then it's like, you listen to their note. Like who cares at the end of the day? Yeah. So I, I, oh, go I've ahead. done it. I've done it as a producer is I've missed something and been like, Hey, are we, we should probably set this up. You know, like why she has this phone in this scene and we've never seen it before. You know, we should probably set this up. And then they'll, they'll be like, yeah, it happens on page three. She literally pulls out her phone and looks at it, puts it back in her pocket. Mm-hmm. And I go, and I, I, you know, as a producer, I am fully in favor of being like, I'm an idiot. Thanks. Yeah. You can't like, remember everything. It, you sometimes know. you miss stuff. Yeah. It's clear. I mean, I've seen it before where I'm like, in the scene, are we really getting the intention here that uh, I feel like we need to know why she wants to kill her? And I'm like, oh, you like the entire 45 pages that came before this? And this is the the shift into act two you're not getting that she wants to murder the person <laughs> that killed her family okay so, <laughs> read something so, else yeah so 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 rolf what what are some of the the battles that you have to face as a screenwriter and uh, not uh-huh. not as a director but as a screenwriter um in order to like to 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 try to preserve the vision that you have on a script and obviously when you sell something you you, you kind of lose the the preservation of your idea sometime and somebody else might come in or when it's on set, people rewrite it or actors will rewrite it. Um, but what do you do when you're, when you're dealing producers uh, to kind of, and, and what kind of things do they, do they stop you from, you know, that they don't want in your scripts? You know, what are the problems that they well, have? I, got, I, I mean, I have a lot of stories, obviously. Um, <laughs> one of the first ones that comes to mind was I was hired uh, by, uh, uh, you know, a, a Golden Globus, Oh yeah, way back when, after they split, they formed two different companies. And uh, Globus Senior, Walter Senior, and Globus had a company, and they had the rights to a comic book called Zen Intergalactic Ninja, which I'd never heard of. But it was this. (laughs) They hated the comic book, of course, as everyone did at back then. This was before all the comic book movies, you know, way back. And I pitched something, and they and they liked it, and I got the job to write the script. And the thing I, which I almost never do, but they insisted that I send every 10 pages to them while I was writing it. Oh, no. Which no, I, that's the only time yet. I've ever had to do that. And I despised it. But so yeah. this is the thing. So I'm, I'm writing the script. I'm sending every 10 pages. I'm hearing no, no real notes. Everyone's, they're reading it. They're on the same page. I turn in the last 10, 15 pages of the, of the script. And then they want to meet. And now they have the whole script. And I go in there and, and what I pitched them was kind of, uh, Jackie Chan meets E.T. kind of movie. Okay. <laughs> um, and they said, you know, well, we like the script, but we want to be less E.T., more like The Crow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I'm like, those huh? are two very different movies. Yeah, that's, that's completely like, different. We don't, we don't want you to change the story or the characters or the events. We just want you to change the tone of the movie. The entire script, then. The tone of the script. Yeah. So the only thing I could do was literally go through the whole script and add adjectives like, you know, overcast and gloomy and dark and you know, just fill it up with because I'm like the tone. I'm like, don't change the characters of the plot, but the tone. That was a weird one. Um. So that was that was one connection. More like Finding Nemo. Yeah. And this was after they'd been reading every ten pages, so it wasn't like this. It was out of the blue. They were they were seeing it as they were going. So I was. They never made the movie, big surprise, but, you know, that was, that was one. Um, 
I always love when they can give one, like a one sentence note that blows up the entire movie oh. and somehow not realize. Yeah. Uh, like this isn't my own story, but I had a friend millions of years ago was doing a sci-fi channel movie that was about a killer woolly mammoth. And he said that when he turned it in, the one sentence note he got was that they loved the script, didn't want to change anything, but they no longer wanted it to be about a woolly mammoth. They came back to like, they wanted it to be about a giant squid and somehow didn't realize that. How could you, how could that be the same script? If you go from like land to ocean, whatever, but (laughs) Holy God. The worst thing on, 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 on set, I I wrote a uh, action, low budget action movie called red line that had a star studded cast of, uh, Michael Madsen, Corey Feldman, Dom DeLuise, Jan Michael uh, Vincent, Julie uh, Julie Strain. Uh, it was, wow. yeah. And it was a script, and I was brought in, and I had 48 hours to fix it. It was like a 56-page script. They didn't have a third act. And I did it in like 48 hours, and they liked it a lot, and they went into production. And there was this one big scene, the seven-page dialogue scene, which hinges the whole movie on it. And, and everyone was there. It's like, Oh, it was, it was a Chad McQueen. Steve McQueen's son was the lead of the movie. So it was him, Roxanne Zoll from uh, River's Edge. And then that's where they meet Michael Madsen, who's the bad guy. And Corey Feldman's there. And it's, a, you know, seven people in the scene. And I'm on the set that day watching them shoot this thing. And the director was also the DP. And he was just in awe of having all these names in there. So he wasn't giving any direction. And Michael Madsen enters the scene about three pages in. And suddenly he comes in eating a banana. And then the actors started aver- uh, improvising about the banana. And Corey Feldman goes over this whole thing about the banana. And I'm sitting there watching <laughs> the scene just get destroyed as they're just coming up with, you know, out of the top of their heads. And then, of course, they have to go and buy two dozen bananas to do all the takes, you know, so they still have enough bananas. And the director doesn't say anything. And I'm, I'm just saying, you've just, the scene makes no sense. It's, you're just, they didn't memorize the lines. They got, they memorized half the, and then they just went off on tangents. Uh, and I was the only one, you know, at the end, I went to Michael Matz and I said, so, uh, did you ever? Did you improvise this much on Reservoir Dogs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? And he said, he goes, well, you know, we had rehearsals on that one, and we had pre-production. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And then Corey Feldman had the, had the actually said to me, he goes, because he knew what was happening. He says, well, you know, Rolf, you know, when actors improvise and it works out well, the writer gets all the credit. <laughs> yeah, when it works <laughs> out <laughs> well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, huh? And when it's terrible, it's like, yeah, this is a piece of crap. Yeah. So that was. That that I was killing me because I'm a director and I couldn't say anything just being the writer, but I was like banging my head going, oh my God, you know. But, uh, <laughs> so that's uh, watching uh, your work be destroyed, yeah, in front of your face. I, yeah. I hate improvising in film. I hate it. I think yeah, digital filmmaking has made that so easy that every director and whatever just like is like, oh, just improvise it. We'll just keep the cameras rolling and I'll throw it together in the edit bay. And I'm like, you think they fucking made Ghostbusters, one of the funniest movies ever, by improvising every scene? Yeah. Fuck off. You get a line on a take. Well, yeah, that's well, what I always drove me nuts. I remember with the Austin Powers, especially the sequels, is you could tell, like, you could feel where they would go off on these, like, ad-lib tangents, and then all of a sudden the scene would really awkwardly snap back yeah, to where the script had been, and it just, like, it would always pull me out of the movies, even even though it was funny. I was yeah. just like, there's a way to do this. Like part of, I have a lot of respect for Jim Carrey. Cause what he did on Sonic was, is he would basically ad lib all his scenes, 
but the day before, like he'd be like, Hey, I have some ideas. And then, cause they actually rehired us on the movie almost specifically to be, they were shooting it in Vancouver and the producer would like call us up and be like, Hey, Jim's got a bunch of ideas for the scene tomorrow. He wants to say something like this. Can we get like 10 alts for this line? And we would kind of rewrite the scene. And then that would be the scene. Like he didn't want to, he didn't want to like free ball it while the cameras were rolling. It was just well, kind of like, he's done that and it didn't work out well. Yeah. You know, like yeah, it's, okay. it, it's exhausting. It'll, it'll burn you out really fast. And to me, it doesn't make for a good, a good movie. It's not funny that much anymore. You look at any of the, I don't want to throw the filmmaker under the bus, but we all know who I'm talking about, who makes two and a half hour long comedies that are just <laughs> a stoner buddy riffing yeah. Just every scene, just like a bunch of riffs, and then they cobble it together in the edit bay, and then you have a two and a half hour long comedy that has a loose story structure and a bunch of improv scenes, and it's awful. Awful. I mean, I don't know. Some people like it. It's their type of comedy. Well, Not I think mine. part of why Ghostbusters work, I always say about Ghostbusters, is if you take out all the comedy, obviously it wouldn't be as good a movie, but Ghostbusters will still work scene yeah. by scene as a like horror action thriller. Absolutely. Uh, the comedy is just on top of it. And that's what like, so Bill Murray can do his little, also Bill Murray's Bill Murray. It's like, you don't want to set your standards by like, Oh, the one of the funniest humans yeah. who's ever lived. Let's emulate that. Or yeah. let's stop but, him from doing what he does too. Like, but it's also like, he him. was really the only one ad libbing his stuff and he knows how to do it. Everyone else was just doing the script. Yeah. And so they so knew, they knew so, Murray was like that, which is why mm -hmm. they, you know, they would certainly they'd set him up for certain things like that. Same thing mm -hmm. with like Belushi and Blues Brothers. They would yeah. just do little setups to make it be like, now you can you say what's in the script, but then you know maybe in another take you can riff something and it'll work, as opposed to just like, you know, blank, Schmesh uh, Schmogan says something funny here. Yeah. So yeah, well, I, 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 go back to the classic, uh, one of my all-time favorites, having to tell me Frankenstein. Yeah, that's a script that is a it's a solid script that has a plot. It doesn't have to have Abby Costello in it. It works as a story. And then you put two comedians in there. And, you know, as it was supposedly Costello hated the script because <laughs> he didn't, they didn't get to do their routines and he didn't find it was good. And then when they finally finished the movie and premiered it, his mother said, it's the best thing you've ever done. And then he loved the movie. It, wasn't <laughs> <laughs> it is their best movie. Yeah, and it is. It is. Yeah, so so Buzz, I want to touch upon this this whole I improvisation thing here because, I mean, okay, you, you have uh, people like uh, Mike Lee, who spends two months, uh, and I don't know if you guys know Mike Lee's movies from yeah. from yeah, Naked, yeah. you know, like it, Naked's my top three favorite movie, um, where he'll re like improv improvise uh, for two three months, and then he'll write the script based on the improvisation, or you have somebody like Joe Swanberg. Who makes movies that is that he just gives the actors a setup and lets them do their thing and lets them improvise everything on set and some of these movies are are actually really good. So you completely think that all know. improvisation is bad, or even like a Will Ferrell letting Will Ferrell loose on a set is bad. It de it really really depends. The problem with modern comedy with this improv I'm talking about is that it is people trying to be funny. Trying too hard. Yeah. So, so there hard. is an element of trying too hard and that's why the improv doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, now let's look at Christopher Guest. 
Best in yeah. Show or even Spinal oh. Tap or yeah. Waiting for Guffman. No one in those in all those movies are 100% start to finish or improv. It's literally just they wrote a treatment out. They set the cameras up. They do the fake interview. And those people become those characters and they just start riffing as that person. Now, because Parker Posey and Fred uh, Willard and and uh, um, Christopher Guest himself, you know, those those people are naturally very, very funny, but they're playing everything seriously. They are that person. Nothing they're saying is supposed to be funny. It's Leslie Nielsen in, in, in uh, Airplane and Naked Gun. He's yeah. serious. Totally straight. I am a serious person with a serious thing happening around me. So when Parker Posey is, is saying, we need to get the busy bee. Where's the busy bee? She's freaking out. <laughs> she herself is freaking out. It is hilarious. Yeah. But Parker Posey's character does not think it's hilarious. The problem with modern comedy in general with this improvisation uh, and, and these types of filmmakers' movies is that everybody's in on it. They are all sitting there mugging with the camera, you know, just going, all right, I'm going to make my buddy laugh here with this line. I'm going to make that, you know, that's not, that's not funny. I mean, to some yeah. people, again, it is funny. To me, that that isn't good writing. It's not interesting. Whereas writing the treatment out and giving a character a very well-drawn, because that's what Christopher Guest does, is he tells them, this is your background, this is your past, now fill in the blanks, how does this person react to this question? And then they just start riffing on that, and suddenly, that is, even though Best in Show is entirely improv from start to finish, it's one of the best written comedies of all time. Yeah. Because they yeah. drew those characters out. They, they wrote them to such a way that Eugene Levy can just straight up answer a question as that, as, what's his name, Fleck? I don't know. I don't Catherine, a while, yeah. Catherine O'Hara and, and uh, Eugene oh. that movie are so when she does the walk and her like legs all fucked up, it like makes me cry laughing. I'm like, I don't know how she did that, but it's so funny. <laughs> I, I I got to spend uh, you know ten years or so at the Tonight Show, and for the last like five or six of those, uh, Fred Willard was always on the show doing whatever sketches in whatever, and it was just the most amazing. Thing ever just just be able to just, especially during rehearsals to get to see the watch that guy just fucking riff. Well, man. he had one of those amazing things where you can't you can't see the acting on his face. Yeah, right. it's just like, ah, like da, 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 da. it you know? it really does just feel like this doddering old man just like wandered in front of the camera. <laughs> well, he's one of the few uh, improv actors that that like uh, he is a guy that's trying to be funny who's not funny and mm-hmm. then that's funny so yeah. it's, it's such a meta weird style of comedy that he's one of the i i actually can't think of anybody else that yeah it's a good that. way to put it yeah because he, he yeah it's just so confusing it's confusing you, you, look, at, you look at best in show he's the guy yeah his jokes are horrible <laughs> he, you know he's like oh that you know she, she's uh giving her a real pat there uh, you know and the other guy's really uncomfortable <laughs> And you're, it's a joke that he's trying to be funny mm-hmm. in the movie in context, but it's not funny, which is why we as the audience think it's funny. And it's Michael Scott's the same way. That's another character that does it. And Michael Scott thinks he's being hilarious, and because he's not being hilarious, that's why it's so funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so Josh, you, you talked about Jim Carrey. Like, uh, did you have uh, – I know I, I went to the, the Sonic – Buzz and I, we got to have drinks with you and talked about this uh, after the Sonic premiere. 
or this uh, that first night it opened. Um, what was it like working with Jim Carrey? And like, did you get chances to work with him on set and uh, or afterwards or? No, like uh, I would in some way, I would almost say we didn't even meet him until the movie was over because he's the classic kind of funny guy who while he's working, it doesn't seem like there's anything funny about him. Like he's really mm. intense and focused. Um, and, and you want to leave him alone and let him do his thing. That's the other thing. Well, set, also, you know. too, it's like we're just like nobody's visiting the set. We, <laughs> hey, Jim Carrey, let's. What's your favorite movie? Want to yeah. hear my impressions of you? I used to do growing up as a kid. Like, you know, we didn't have those kind of. You didn't want to say, "All righty then." Yeah, <laughs> Somebody beans. Me. Um. So yeah, it was like, and and also, um, it's funny that Buzz used the word "burning I, out" I that about you him. Ask for the quote. Yeah. <laughs> But because uh, he like he goes so hard. I remember a director noting that at some point he realized that that's one of the things that Jim looks for from the director is to protect him by just eventually being like, no, we got it. Like, let's move on, because otherwise Jim will just like keep going and going like because I remember um, you never know like somebody who's been that famous for that long. I was like, are we going to get. Marlon Brando on uh, Island of Dr. Moreau, where he's just going to say like random words basically and be like, you can edit that get together into my line. But like every single setup, he didn't want to stop until he was able to do the entire scene in his mind flawlessly beginning to end almost like he didn't understand how editing works. Like that was why it was impressive. Like, but so it was just kind of like, at some point, our director would be like, no, we got it. That was amazing. Like, let's move on. Um, I guess it's one of those moments where you, you can see how someone becomes like the most famous comedian in the world is he just has that intense level of work ethic. It was pretty crazy to watch. What decision. You, he had to do the whole scene every time. Every time from every setup. Like he just it didn't matter if you already got it. Uh, he also w didn't do the thing where he wouldn't be there. For the other actors' shots, like he didn't he go just, back goes, to the trailer. Yeah, he, just as hard, right? On people's yeah, he just keeps going because such a generous thing. Because so many actors just don't do that anymore, and it's heartbreaking to me when I'm like, "Oh, cool, you're making us do the tennis ball for mm -hmm. uh, the, for your co-stars coverage." That's real nice, real real good of you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, I will say all of his hard work paid off, and you know, and I told you this after we saw Sonic, and and I I truly mean it. Because I told you I would have lied to you, and I'm not lying to you now. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's Jim Carrey's best performance I think since Liar Liar. I'd agree, and I like what Rolf was saying. Like you, I we get so much credit for what was all him. Like it, even yeah. beyond just his execution, it's like he came up with a lot of his best stuff in the movie. Um, but you welcome it because you want the movie to be good. Yeah. But going back to what I said about the Christopher Guest thing, you you laid that foundation for him to run with. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so important about writing is making sure. And actually, looping back to, I think, the original topic, I think that really is the difference between the, uh, well, Judd Apatow, we can just say it. I, <laughs> love, I love so much Judd Apatow stuff that I don't feel bad talking shit about his bad stuff. Um, I mean, Freaks and Geeks is one of the best TV shows ever. Just that one season. Yeah. We um, Hollywood. I try not to literally talk shit about anybody until he's they get so good though. Like 
it's okay. Mel Brooks made a, a million great movies and then an equal number of shitty movies. Like mm-hmm. it just happened. It happens once you get that level where you're just making that much stuff. Um, but I think the difference is the concept of a foundation. There is a difference between I'm Larry David and I'm writing a detailed treatment for Curb Your Enthusiasm and Apatow, who's an amazing writer and will write in a whole script. But then I think it's kind of like they just get carried away with the idea of how can we beat this scene, which is a good mindset to have, but you're not going to be able to beat the scene every time, every day. And then it's just kind of like knowing where to rein it in. I don't know. Like, cause I think his process worked so well on 40 year old virgin. Um, and then just, I don't know. I mean, it's digital filmmaking. If Judd Apatow had to shoot on film and you had a producer that was going, um, you can't shoot another $10,000 yeah. worth of film for this 30 second scene. Please stop. Uh, then you'd be like, yeah, yeah, walk in this funny way that I wrote and now we're done and we're going to move on. Whereas when digital filmmaking, it's like hit record, sit back four hours later, we built a hard drive, <laughs> we're good to go, moving on. So uh, a Buzz, as a producer, uh, especially when you're line producing and scheduling and budgeting a movie or at least putting that hat on, um, what are some of the things you see in a script that just really bug the hell out of you and, and make your life worse? Oh, I got this. Stereo night. Ah, here we go. <laughs> Although I will start this off with uh, uh, how many line producers does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know. I don't know. Can it just be a daytime exterior? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's my one. My one, my one line. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, uh, the most annoying thing, just as a line producer, as a producer, a creative thinking person, I don't think about this at all. So this is my huge lesson to you guys. Knock off the fucking continuous. Interior, this thing, night. And then this thing, interior, continuous. And then continuous. And then continuous. Oh. Stop writing. Interesting. It's so annoying. Just just write the fucking story out and stop putting continuous. Because then when I break it down, that just becomes a nightmare for me. And either just put night and we know it's continuous or don't put anything at all. Yeah, that's it. Well, and learn how to how to break up your scenes. If someone leaves a room, it is a new location. Thus, needs to be a new scene. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, it, I I can understand that. But then also when you're when you're first plugging in the script into the into uh, into an automated thing where it's going to come into your movie magic budgeting system, the continuouses. Yeah, they they if you don't put night or day at the end of it. It knocks out all of those, and you have to hand put them in by hand. You add like ten extra steps for us that we don't need. Hours, and and we know it's continuous because you say she leaves the bedroom and walks into interior living room. Continuous. Oh no, shit! It's continuous because you just said she left the bedroom and is walking into dash the yeah. living room. Fuck <laughs> off! Like just make it a new fucking. It's interior living room night. Yeah, I, was actually, I was actually even told on uh, one script I wrote to get rid of anything that says morning, afternoon, yes. evening, dusk, just day, night, day, night, day, night. Exactly. Nothing. 
because uh, the crew is not going to know. Okay, morning is is okay. Is it two in the morning? Then it would probably be fucking dark. <laughs> it, 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 you know, uh, what is? And then they might put in later. What in the oh, fuck are you talking? Later. The worst Avoid is later. Later at all, co- like what? never put in later. later. You just like you just know you're just gonna hate Your this fucking screenwriter. They know yeah. it's fucking later because it's a new goddamn scene. So exactly. Yeah, know. no, fucking cuss all you well, want, goddammit. I will say this. Uh, I like knowing that, and now knowing that, I completely understand and agree. The one thing that I've also learned <laughs> writing, though, and it's always it's confusing to wrap your brain around it, is because I feel like, you know, we're all movie fans. We grew up watching movies, uh, and I'm sure, Rolf, you'd agree, is that it's when, like, initially you start thinking of like, oh, you're thinking about the audience. You're thinking about you watching this movie, yeah, the yeah. people who are going to watch this movie, and then eventually you realize step one, that's irrelevant. The <laughs> only people you need to think about are the people who are going to be reading this and hopefully giving it money, attaching things to it. So there's like this whole extra step. And I just went through this on a project I can't talk about, but we were just going over and over and over this treatment to get it greenlit. And the moment it got greenlit, then it was like, okay, now what are we really going to do? Like, let's, Mm -hmm. we made it past that first stupid step, which in some ways has nothing to do with what the movie should be. It's literally just the title. That's why, that's why the movie No Strings Attached got made because the script floated around Hollywood and it was called Fuck Buddies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So was looking down at their pile of scripts to read and they were like, Fuck Buddies, what's that? I'm gonna read. No, uh, American Pie was the same thing. I don't remember what yeah. it was because it was like a whole paragraph, but it's yeah, like that was yeah. famously. Oh, was yeah. Some, was it and like... it was aimed at the script readers. So that guy is a genius in that sense. He was thinking even before the producing level, he was thinking of these underpaid intern nobodies at like CAA and stuff. Standing between a writer and a producer is these unknown underpaid, sometimes not paid kids that are like, what is this movie? And they start reading it. They're 10 pages in. They're just kind of like, why, why is there aliens references? I don't, I've never seen aliens. Mm. Trash. Uh. Don't but care. So my, my point was is that we've learned that you kind of initially have to write your script so it's as easy to follow as embarrassingly possible mm-hmm. and as sexy to read as you can make it. And then once you make it over that, like, okay, we're going to make this movie, now you start stripping it away so your, like, fight scenes are described as, like, then Steve punches Dave. They fight. You know, and you're like, that's yeah. someone else's job. That's a that's Just a stunt choreographer. Yeah, job. the stunt choreographer doesn't yeah. want my suggestions for what their awesome fight scene should be. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, I, I I used to I started when I started writing scripts when I was about 14 years old. I started reading a lot of screenplays. I buy them at conventions and things like that, and to see what other people were doing. Now, when I started reading. Because of course everyone was reading them because they made so much, they sold them for a fortune. The Shane Black scripts. Oh, so uh, good. But yeah. those things, as a as a as a filmmaker, they annoyed me because of all of those asides. That I'm like, okay, you're writing something to entertain the reader that's not going to be on film at all. This is purely for the enjoyment of of reading it, but like it will not translate into a movie. Like be novelistic like, like, you know, stuff, fact, like thoughts. You know, deer fact number one hundred and one. When you hit a deer, and you're supposed to pop. I mean, you know, they he would go off on these uh, tangents. The, the oh, most really? Famous one, Christian is is in Lethal Weapon. 
when Riggs and Murtaugh are approaching the house in Beverly Hills, mm-hmm. the way the action writes is Riggs and Murtaugh approach the most beautiful, expensive-looking house they could find in the hills, dot, dot, dot. A house much like the one I am going to buy if I oh, sell yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to make the reader laugh, and like, especially all his descriptions are like that, where they'll just kind of like go off on this sort of meta. Oh yeah. Oh, he had one in the uh, the the, the couple. The couple uh, make love. Then he wrote, "I'm not going to write this scene because one, what I find sexy is none of your damn business. Two, the (laughs) actors are going to come up with something more creative than I can. And three, my mother reads this shit. So there." That was in the <laughs> script. It's like one in a million scripts on some of these things. I was yeah, like, not, not everyone's Shane oh, Black though. So like, one in a million can get away with something. But also remember the the script in 1941. Yeah, a million. That, that, I've never that, read that. That, that no. Zemeckis and Bob Gale wrote, and you know they they wrote the action scenes and literally the 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 Ferris wheel goes off the pier with the biggest explosion you've ever seen, and then they have literally three lines of explanation points, just explanation points the entire. Page uh. and Spielberg <laughs> read it and said, I have to make this movie because the writers are so excited about this, it translates. So, for him, it worked. So, even though it's bad writing in a lot of ways, you who's supposed to write 57 explanation points, but it got Spielberg to say yes. So, again, the rules of you know how you're supposed to do a tight script versus letting the reader, letting oh, the writer man. just go off on tangents and entertain the readers sometimes works. It, yeah. It's it's screenwriting is a lot like, and again, I'm speaking as a producer, but it is a lot like an offensive joke. If you're going to break the rules, you better be damn good at it. Yeah. Just like if you're going to say an offensive joke, you better be damn funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, otherwise it's you're just like... breaking the rules or you're just saying offensive, something offensive. Like it, it, it doesn't work. So, I, you know, I always think, oh, if you think you can break the rules and make it work, go for it. But be confident that you actually know how to make it work. I, I, I do have one more uh, tiny little suggestion, and I don't think you guys do this. Um, but this is just for anybody yeah, listening yeah. That, that's a newer screenwriter, because I see this a lot with, uh, with you know, first-time screenwriters or even people that are good but just haven't done it enough. Enter a scene late, leave early. Yep, yes. like Tarantino. Take out the no. goodbyes and hellos. No. Oh, yeah. no, like every great screenplay ever written. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Tarantino out- did not invent that. No, no, yeah, yeah. That is a thing that, from Citizen Kane, it's you come into the scene, the two people are in the middle of their conversation. Mm-hmm. And before they get up from their lunch table, you you, you, you leave this. Do not tell me that they're standing up, paying the bill, and walking out of the restaurant. I don't need that. My father made a point once, which, and he said, because my father is a film editor for 50 years yep. on, on a lot of stuff. He said... Not all movies, but most movies, if you cut out the first reel, the first 10 minutes of the film, you have a better movie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you get rid of the whole setup of the thing, just start it right into it, you actually you'll, you'll, you'll be surprised it's a better film. It'll just boom versus setting everything up, establishing everything. Sometimes you just well, don't need it. That, that's actually, it's interesting you say that because a lot of classic films and films I, I love, they were made to, you would go to the movie theater. It was not a... Oh, it started at seven. All right, I'll wait for the next show. It was I got there at eight. The movie started at seven. Here's your five cents. I'm gonna walk in, and then you watch Bogey and Bacall looking hot on screen, and you don't give a shit. You don't know who killed the chauffeur. You just had a great time watching these actors do their thing and scene by scene. It worked. You had a good time, and if you liked it enough, 
you stayed to watch the first half. Yeah, just like television, if you you turn on the TV and you know they're you're mid show and you're like, all right, fuck it, I'm just gonna keep going because this is interesting. Yeah, I didn't, I, I never really thought about that 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 people even before the television days and especially before the television days did, just would walk into a theater and just say, fuck it, I'm you know because we're well, all probably was, Nazis about it. We want to make sure that we see the first well, fucking frame of the movie. That was Hitchcock. They always credit him as changing that with Psycho. Because yeah. that was part yes. of the advertising campaign was yeah. that you need to be there oh, at the beginning. Okay. Well, and they, they the theaters were explicitly told by Universal, lock the doors. Yeah. Once the movie starts, no one is allowed to come in. And that's how Showtime started. Because yeah. before it was just random. People would walk in any time. That's when they actually started Showtime. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. That was Psycho. Psycho began that, yeah. yeah. But I was going to follow up on Ralph. What Ralph was saying, uh, I'd say that's the number one thing across all projects that my writing partner, Pat, and I kind of, I don't want to say get into like it's an argument, but uh, it was a revelation that we had, and obviously Ralph's dad had a long time ago, (laughs) that we're always surprised that people don't realize, which is just the like, we're always like, all this stuff we're talking about, act one, you're giving us all these notes of all this setup we need to do. You are going to cut all of this out. You're going to shoot it all. You're going to cut all of it out. We can simplify things by doing that now in the script. We're going to save you time and money. We can make the movie better by acknowledging that. Because, uh, like, just using Sonic as an example, uh, uh, if you're familiar with the movie, it's like the movie doesn't really get get going until Sonic meets James Marsden's character. Mm-hmm. And we used to have like 20 more minutes of stuff that happened in that town with them individually before they came together. Granted, I missed some of it. Like some of it was really good, just like movie. But it was also that was while writing the script, we're all just kind of like, man, it takes forever for this movie to get to the part where if somebody asked you, what's this movie about? And you started explaining it, you wouldn't have said any of that stuff beforehand. Um, and, and, you know, and yeah, a lot of like the best movies, like the Ghostbusters, they're basically already the Ghostbusters. They encounter a ghost in like the opening scene. And then in the next scene, they're getting, well, not, that's not literally, we see Bill Murray, you know, doing his tests and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we so quickly get to uh, all the stuff. And I, for people who don't know about movie novelizations, those were the books that they used to release that were novelized versions of scripts that kind of become famous for the fact that the people writing those were usually writing them off of the like initial scripts and they would kind of contain some of these deleted scenes. And if you read the Ghostbusters novelization, there's all this dumb bull crap about their like personal lives. Okay, and like Bill, Bill Murray's got like a whole thing going on, I think with uh, Dan Aykroyd's like sister. And there's, you know, eventually they're just like, no, we need to get them being the yeah, Ghostbusters. Well, that's why one of my first things I'll do, like if I get a script, and this is a producer, if I get a script and uh, and I'm guilty, like the movie I directed, I did this and it was a mistake. It was a big thing. I should have I should have sat down and figured out another way to do it. But I personally need the movie, start the movie where it starts to get interesting. If you have to do a flash forward, and like show something crazy that's happening and then flashback two weeks earlier. Oh, hang on, wait, no, your movie got interesting there. So let's start there. Start now, there, yeah. 
I don't need to go back. So start the movie where it gets interesting. And I think that's a huge, that's a lesson. Unless it's I, a murder mystery or something. No, Maybe a murder, no, no not no, even that. I'm, you no, don't want to tease I, anything. I think, I'm trying to think, there's like one example of that movie, of, of that type working, and I can't remember what it is. Um, well, again, wrote, it, it works, it case. works when it. it works. Oh, yeah. But you don't necessarily want to emulate that. Even a murder mystery, I think that's what Ryan Johnson did with Knives Out. And I think he's even said that in interviews, is he was like, well, what would happen if what they normally reveal at the end of the movie, I reveal at the end of act one, what's the rest of my movie. If I almost immediately tell the audience who did it, it and just can I still have expectations and uh, we don't always do it. Cause sometimes it's like, yeah, it's a joke. You can say making fun of a movie, but it's also basically a movie's work of like, uh, well, why did they do this instead of that? And the answer is cause we need the movie to happen. Like, mm. Correct. Sometimes you do just need to say that. And there's a lot of great movies that really, if you had seen that script, like I don't want to get into it now, but back to the future is one of the worst scripts ever. As far as like Logic. following what we're told Logic. our basic screenwriting one one but it doesn't matter. Cause that movie just, it just works because it's so much fun. The characters are good. Um, but something my writing partner, I'll try to do when we feel stuck and if it's the kind of thing where we're like, well, we're kind of treading water up to this next plot point, it is, what if we just move it up? What happens? Yeah. What's what's the movie going to be like now if we get to this thing that we'd initially told ourselves, oh, this is our mid-act two crisis. Like, this is when the whole movie's going to take a left turn. It's like, well, what if we get to that 15 minutes in? Sometimes it is like, no, 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 we need to, well, you know we need to pad to this out. But other times your movie just gets more exciting. So there's a similar process I do sometimes when I'm working with writers as a producer and, and, and you know, if we get to a spot where we need to break something up and, and break through the scene and figure out, okay, this, this isn't working, so we got to rewrite this. And the writers are like, oh, because, you know, and you guys know this, a lot of times you get married to something yeah. and you only see, you don't see the, the trees for the forest or the forest for the trees. And so, you know, sometimes my job is to sort of clear the haze, if you will. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'll do, and I'll tell writers this, that I'm like, this is what I'm going to do, is I start throwing out bad ideas. Like, straight up, like, well, what if uh, he comes out um, and he decides to kill that character? And they're like, well, no, 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 he can't do that because this needs to happen. Oh, all right, well, what if uh, that character comes back as a robot? And I, I, I literally will just start throwing out bad ideas. Nine times out of ten, the writer's brains click into action and start fixing it the right way. Because they're just like, no, 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 we're not adding a robot to this uh, talking dog movie. That's a bad idea. So this is how the talking dog now escapes from the pound. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, that's a dumb example, but like, that's normally how it works is that, and I, I do the same thing if I'm Go writing extremes. something. Ex do the extremes. Then. If I'm writing something and I have writer's block, I start writing the worst thing I can possibly imagine really? and my brain corrects myself. You do you do that. So just the, something that's completely outside of the box of the screenplay, you write it into the script. Yeah, like I'm just or not, not even like a style or anything like that, like literally just bad. The like, worst thing you could think, like whatever comes I walk into kitchen. He's sad. You know, I'll just start writing really? bad stuff like that. And my brain just starts to kind of correct it. And then I go back and then I start reediting it. And I go, oh, wait, yeah, the the man uh whooshed into the kitchen you know um with with his cap on and said said how do you do mom and then he ran to his bedroom you know what i mean like i just yeah. i'm something better 
because your brain automatically starts to correct itself. You, yeah, you have to start thinking something. Rolf, like, how is it? How is it that you, uh, uh, on uh, uh, compared to most people on Earth, can write a script in three, <laughs> four, five fucking days? I, I it's a hundred uh, scripts are a hundred pages. It's about a page per minute or so. What in the hell goes on with your brain that makes that allows you to be able to structure an entire screenplay with like up to 20, 30 characters and and a hundred to two hundred scenes? How does that work? Well, um, I mean, I mean, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to say. With I always was a writer before I was even writing. I could I would tell babysitter stories, and I would just always had ideas. I watch a lot of movies, um, so. You read enough scripts, you see enough movies, good and bad. You sort of get into the formulas of what they are, and I, I always, I've always written from an audience point of view of like, am I entertained? Am I bored? So I try to keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but you fall into the formats. What, what was uh, a little difficult for me was when I got into television, the Lifetime movies and the TV movies, because those are different structurally from normal theatrical movies or independents, yeah. because. The event that's usually supposed to happen on page 15 now is not supposed to happen until page 20, 23, because that's where the commercial break is. So, mm-hmm. the, so, you, so I found myself having to fill up a little bit of time. Now I was saying this is always like five pages too long because it should have happened here, but you got to wait it out. And then you start writing for commercial breaks and then things start. Ch- and then I was told even with international that on page you know, 60, you know, halfway through the script, you have to recap your movie because people might be turning in to the second hour of the film <laughs> and just the first half, and you have to re-explain what they didn't see, which is terrible writing. So it's like <laughs> it goes against like you know tight screenplay writing, and it was like, but this is for yeah. TV audiences with commercials and you know. So, I, so, so, but what I mean, what is it that that that? Uh, so it, it's a science then to make you uh, to allow you to be able to do something in three days that normal people normally can't do in fucking sometimes six months. Yeah, I just I mean, every writer's different. I, I don't usually I, I a lot of times when I'm it's an assignment I work I do a beat sheet or an uh, or a treatment that they sign off on so we know we're on the same page and then I stick pretty close to it. Um, mm-hmm. And I go from there, but dialogue, I can write fast and I just, the events can spin out. I, I, I was working for one very low budget filmmaker who's made 200 movies and I wrote a lot of scripts for him and he was afraid to hire me at first because he thought I was too ambitious. But I, as a director too, I knew what was like no, no night exteriors, no, you know, day for night looks terrible, all this kind of, no tables, no dinner table scenes with six people around the dinner table and you'll never fill it. So I wrote these scripts that were, because um, he was shooting. He was shooting these movies in three days. So oh, I shit. And, and he told me <laughs> that my scripts were like almost director proof. That as long as they stuck to the script, they have a movie because it's all just there. And I was trying to avoid all the troubleshooting every problem you could have on a set, and still make something entertaining, which is very hard because you you find yourself writing more long filler than not, which yeah. is the worst thing to do as a writer. But you know they don't want. Too much sex. They don't want too much violence. They don't want too much this. They, you know, it's like so. What are they doing? They're talking. So everyone's got to talk nonstop. You know. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's a lot easier to just sit two people in a room and have that fill up ten minutes of yeah. of screen time. Uh, I mean, and th- and I I want to make sure I make a disclaimer that Rolf doesn't write all of his scripts in three days, but he has the ability, the superhuman ability, to do so. 
So, uh, you know, if you need one uh, within a week, uh, you, you call that guy. I will say, because uh, you might be listening to that being like, three days, probably not good. Uh, I have seen a movie that was written in three days, uh, a film by a friend of ours, Gatto, uh, Automation. Really? Uh, oh, if, well, oh, yeah. If you guys haven't seen that yet, it is a great little sci- – I don't even want to call it necessarily horror. Um, I guess it is because there's a, there's a killer there's robot. There's yeah, there's gore. A little bit. I haven't seen it yet. Bit. Um, it's so good. It's such a good little movie. Uh, and Rolf, you did such a great job with that script. It, it's, Three days. It's... Well, that was a script. I mean, that was. I mean, that yeah, that story. Well, you, I, you know, some of it. I mean, I yeah. talk about it on the DVD and Blu-ray. No, yeah, that was one where where Gatto. It was after hard trivia. We we talked outside for three hours. He wanted to do a chopping mall kind of movie. He uh, told me he had one robot. And he wanted to do a whole dozen robots. And I said, well, how are you going to do a dozen? And he wants to make this movie for nothing. He said, well, we, we can do CGI and duplicate the robots. I said, no, don't do that. You have one robot, stick with one robot. <laughs> I said, don't drive yourself crazy on your first movie. And then we said, let's make it more about the Beauty and the Beast love story between the characters. So it's, you know, with love the kills. And I helped him. I wrote the treatment. Um, he didn't have the money and the time, so he didn't hire me. But he did like the first 20 pages. And I read them and I gave him notes on it. And we met once or twice. And then he was going to write the script. He ran out of time. So he wrote half of the script. And then he went to another uh, writer friend of his, uh, Matthew, who I never met until the screening, who wrote the second half of the script. And then, yes, two, two, two days before the table read, I was in New York and they sent me the script and I read it and I told him it doesn't work. I said, it's two different writers. And you can see you stopped on page 52 and he took over. And one script is the, has the humor and the heart that we were doing in the other house just has all the action and horror and lost the humanity of the movie. And God was like, well, we have a table read in, in like 48 hours or it was, I think it was 24 hours. Can you do a polish and fix it? <laughs> and I'm like, I'll do what I can. And I literally sat down there and I 24, about 24 hours, I 80% restructured, flipped things around, move scenes, rewrote dialogue. And that's what they pretty much when then he made tweaks on the set and stuff, but it was, it was a challenge, but I but I knew what we were going for. I knew who the characters yeah. were. I knew who the story was, and I knew what made sense or what didn't make sense. You know, it, it's it's the reason the movie works is this because I was not expecting. This is another situation, Josh, where I, I was like fully prepared to lie, um, and be like, "Great job," mm-hmm. uh, and I, I was very happy. Like fifteen minutes into the movie, I was like, "I'm a hundred percent on board. That th- I care about this robot and its emotions." When, hmm. like, I don't know how that happens so quickly. Like, literally, you're just sitting there going, oh, that's what this movie's about? This is cool. Okay, <laughs> I'm on board. No, and Goddard did a great job on that film. I yeah. mean, for a first movie, it's, it's, a, it's a very low budget. But, um, no, I was very happily surprised on that one, too. And, and even the other writer who's like, there was no humor in, the, in my part of the script. You know, it all works. But, I, you know, it's like I didn't expect any of that stuff in there. But it's, just, it's finding the characters and the motive. I mean, there was one little scene, like there's this scene where the robot's about to kill somebody, the, the creator, and the robot starts asking for a 401k and like uh-huh. vacation time and a new automobile. And I'm like, that makes no sense. The robot would never ask for that. 
the 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 human who thinks that that's what matters to people. She's the one who can tell the robot, "We'll give you a four hundred one k and benefits." That's funny, but the robot doing it made no logical sense. I said, "Well, if I move the dialogue and put it in her mouth, then the scene will work." So it was it was stuff like that that you just had to uh, quickly, yeah. you know, and and and, it, and it, yeah, it played. So it was. And, and you- and you ended up being the producer on that, and but you weren't technically the writer then. No, no, no. I, I was. Um, I was. You have writing credit. We share story by credit. Oh, and you I a story by credit with them. I'm not the producer. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't. I wasn't on the set. I mean, that was uh, uh, Dan Bowen and Esther Goodstein were the producers on it. Yeah, <laughs> with, yeah. With uh, Gatto and, and his and his wife. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Buzz, uh, when you read a script, and, and a lot of screenwriters uh, and first-time screenwriters may not know this, but as soon as it's in a producer's hands, especially a line producer, like nothing else happens to the script until the line producer is able to start the schedule and start the budget. But the line producer also has control to make sure that, like, okay, you have a, a scene where it's going from this room to this room to this room and, and, and or inside and outside of a car. Uh, explain some of the situations where you actually have to rewrite or put a new scene header into a script and like take control of a script and be like, oh, well, why is that day? Why is that night? Like, you know, those kind of things where you you have to take control of the script as a producer. I mean, look, I mean, I, I... I mean, as a line producer or as a producer? I mean, as, as a, a producer, producer, as a line producer, whatever. Like, you know, especially like, I mean, a producer, line producer, you know, you're still always thinking of the budget. You're always thinking of the schedule, no matter what kind of pro- like a real producer you are, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look, if uh, if I'm having an AD breaking down the schedule for me, um, I have told the writers, lock the script. Uh, any changes? Because, look, the, the situation is a lot of times you have very little prep time. And so sometimes a schedule needs to be made while we're still making tweaks to the script. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Oh, yeah. And so it's, uh, hey, writers, lock the script, everything else, put everything on revision mode. Um, and uh, any changes we have from the here on out, we just need to track. Um, and then that way, if we send it back to the first AD, like, hey, we did changes to these you know, scenes, the AD can go, okay, easy fix, as opposed to being like, shit, I got to start all over and uh, you know, re re break down the script because now scene 12 is no longer scene 12 it, it's you know scene like we inserted a scene there and because we didn't lock the script it went from scene you know 12 became 13 and uh 11 became the new scene 12 yeah and then uh uh you know as opposed to like you have 11 out al- a- apple or alpha or whatever and then you have yep. scene scene 12 um i know that's a complicated convoluted way to go about it but i mean that that's a lot of it just comes down to like, hey, lock the script. We're going to be working on it, still making tweaks to dialogue, whatever. We'll let you know if there's any big changes. And then the AD, you know, will break it down or, or line producer will start to break it down in terms of just like the these are locations. This is how much I'm thinking about, you know, stuff's going to cost, yada, yada, yada. Um, that That's the biggest thing, you know. Uh, sometimes I do, you know, uh, I will say, hey, make a schedule so that I know how many characters I need to tell the writers we're cutting. That's mm-hmm. from a budget standpoint. And, uh, you know, Josh, when you're writing Sonic the Hedgehog, you can probably have every waitress they run into have a line. Whereas when, you know, we do one of these little Lifetime movies or Rolf and I are doing some low-budget horror movie, if somebody gave us a script and the waitress had a fucking line, we'd be like, what the hell is this? Yeah, one line. <laughs> yeah, cut them out. Yeah, yeah we, we pay sag fees on that. Nope. Pour the coffee and they walk fucking away. 
<laughs> I mean, the funniest thing about doing Sonic, though, is realizing how nothing actually changes despite oh, yeah. the budget. Really? Yeah. Still wasn't yeah. enough time to do the movie. We were still cutting entire characters because of budget. Yeah. Uh, like, it's still... You are correct. We, you can definitely get away with more just like this random... This extra says one line. Yeah. Uh, this is more like, oh, we can't have this character because they're CGI. You know, like that... But it still happens. Like, they still tell you, no, 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 just don't think about the budget. Write the movie. Uh, and you're and then not, you not do in it. our world. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that's like across the board. Like they always tell you that in my screenwriting class when I was in uh, school, uh, every book I've ever read on screenwriting was like, don't think about the budget, just write. You should always oh, yeah. think about the budget. Yes. Like even yes. on a big budget movie, you should still be thinking about it. Like yeah, there's no think... reason not to, because in some ways that can drive the creativity. Correct. Like some well, of yeah. some yeah. of the fastest things I've ever written are the things that were most hemmed in because the problem when they just blew skying in some ways, that's where the writer's block comes. You're just like, Oh, I can literally do anything. But if they're just kind of like, well, we're going to have this many days. You can only have this number of characters, this number of locations. Sometimes that's when you can just be like, boom, 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 knock it out. Because when you, you get to that intersection, you're just like, well, what are the two ideas I have here? which might paralyze you normally. You're just like, well, this one's super expensive. Let's do the cheap one or, you know. L limitations, the birth of creativity. Totally. I, yeah. Well, I, I, had, I had one on, on one lifetime. Uh, it was a, a murder mystery in a sorority fraternities college thing. And there's lots of college people there. So there's scenes with the, the, the frat guys and stuff like that. And they're like, nobody can, you know, we, we, we can only have four speaking parts or whatever it was. So, that turned into every time they went over there, their guys were there. It was hazing and nobody could speak because they were under the hazing ritual. So they could just point because because they weren't allowed to speak <laughs> were hazing. So yeah. there you go. That's why no one talks. <laughs> it works. <laughs> they got a really? little dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so Buzz, uh, we'll start to wrap this up. Like what is the, the best advice you could give a, a budding screenwriter or even somebody who's maybe had a couple of scripts made, uh, for a, a producer standpoint, like what what is the best thing that writers can do to make sure that that their film is going to get made, their script is going to get made? Very easy, but it's complicated. <laughs> Very carefully. Eighty-five to ninety pages, and that's it. I like it. Yeah. I like it. If well, you, no, okay. What if, if you have a hundred characters? That, that it's gonna take a while to read it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. You want to keep it short. That, that's an easy one. But uh, you know, some some of the other ideas, like okay, I as me as a producer, I you understand, like you're gonna uh, hold on. Let me make sure I uh, okay. I have a my girlfriend wants to walk by. We have to go into <laughs> uh, background mode, but. Uh, the amount of characters that you have in your screenplay is a big deal because that's how many people with with dialogue lines and, and party scenes and uh, extras. We get to Those, that later. We get yeah. to that later. For me, you want me to read your script? That is first step. First, first step for any screenwriter, getting someone to fucking read your script. You want someone to read your script? 85, 90 pages. Yeah. They don't know how many characters are in it. They don't know anything else. They don't know what the story is. But I can tell you right now, without reading a concept, a synopsis, even a title, if I see 
it's 90 pages long, I'm already more on board with reading it than anything else. Now, you add on a catchy title and a catchy synopsis, even better. But if you're starting out with a 110-page script, chances are I'm not even going to get to those other steps. I'm probably missing good scripts because there's tons of movies out there that I love that are over 90 minutes. Yeah, But as just a reader and a producer, I go by Hitchcock. A movie should only be as long as the capacity of the human bladder. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And so Rolf, uh, as a as a screenwriter, you 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 do everything. But um, what would you what would you wish that producers did more when you presented a script to them? What what is it that that really you wish they would do more of? I wish producers would do uh, more. Produ- Pay for your scripts more, but <laughs> no, well, no, this is great. Here's a check. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, pain is good. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have trouble with the pain. The pain. Right now, I'm dealing with the pain again. Like, wait. Yeah, to... yeah. Um, okay. Conce- conceptually, I, that's a pretty broad question. So, what yeah. I tend to find a lot of times with producers on some of the level I do is that there's there's just there's a lot of very lazy producers that just. You know, they, they want something, they ask for it right away, then they don't get to it forever. It takes a long time to read it. And if they read it, they skim it, and they don't really pay attention. And then, then you're they get notes at the last minute where things could have been solved way before if they would have waited until, you know, production started or whatever, saying we have a problem, but they yeah. never paid attention to it. So I I, I, I had uh, one quick story I had was that... Uh, I wrote this Christmas romantic comedy and I I wrote, they wanted the script in like eight days and I got it to them like in seven days. And then I was supposed to get notes in three days and I didn't hear anything for two weeks. And then finally I emailed them and they said, oh, well, we like, we got so busy because the script was so good. We just went right into pre-production. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's good. But we will have some notes. And then they cast the movie. They got the locations five days before shooting. They're shooting the movie in Bulgaria. They say, okay, here come our notes. There are four sets of notes. The red notes are from me. The green notes are from our sales team. The yellow notes are from oh. the director. And the black notes are from the other producer. Who just and I'm oh. like, we start shooting in five days. We have the whole cast locations. You can't change anything, but here, try to do the best you can on this. And I'm oh. like, and I, I was, I literally like almost had a, you know, a breakdown, but I, I, I read it. It wasn't as bad because luckily, one producer had not read the script till the last minute, and he didn't like the script. He wanted a romantic drama, not a romantic comedy, but all uh, the other notes were kind of explaining why it, the script works as it is and why all the actors like it, and let's just shoot it. So I did have to make changes, but that was... It's literally just disorganization. Yeah, like, yeah. Too, if there's communication between the writers and the producers and everything, it's so much smoother. You get them on the same page. It's when people just wait till the last minute and then throw it on you. And then they always do. We need a emergency rewrite, you know, in two hours. Yeah. Give us brilliance, you know. Yeah, My so, but, story, I guess, I don't know if you know the story, was um, the end of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh-huh. Did you ever hear? Did you know this one? No, no. Yeah. No. What? The end, the end of the movie... They're the final thing in the movie where they, they the glass elevator crashes through the rooftop and um, Charlie says, like, we or something like that. And they're like, we're not ending the movie on the word we. You know, <laughs> they said, we need a line. Now, the, the writer at that point was on vacation in the middle of a town in the middle of nowhere. He's walking. He just supposed he's walking past a phone booth that starts ringing. He went to the phone booth, picked up the phone, and it was for him. 
It was the producer who said, okay, we're shooting the last scene of Willy Wonka. We need a perfect last line for the movie. Wow. And he's like, you know, like when? Like right now. He says, okay, how about Charlie? You know, don't forget what happened to the boy who got everything he ever wanted. What? He lived happily ever after. Like, perfect. That's it. And I'm like, on the wow. phone, boom, and that's the movie. I, I just, there's, there's a writer, you know? So, so before I, before I, we, we finalize it, I want to, I want to ask Josh one last, uh, little last words, but I want to make note that I was working probably 10 years ago on a, on a film. I, I got asked to be transpo, like a, be a truck driver. And I didn't fucking know, you know, barely knew how to drive much trucks. And I had to drive eight fucking uh, trailers that I had, like star wagons that I had never, ever had to tow before in my life. I learned it within second, like within like minutes as soon as I, like, it's just, it's a whole story if anybody wants to ask me later. But (laughs) I'm on fucking set. It's one of those things where it's like pickup shots. I didn't know what the movie was. I didn't know who was directing it or anything. Uh, I knew... Denise Richards and Pamela Anderson was in it, and it was called uh, <laughs> it, it, it was called Blonde and Blonder. That's all oh. I knew. So I'm setting up their trailers in in a configuration so they could be on set. So and like one or two days into this, and I'm not even on set, I run into fucking Rolf Konevsky, and I'm like, "What in the fuck are you doing here?" He was like, "Yeah, you know what? I I." I wrote this fucking script and they didn't even fucking tell me they were filming it until like a few <laughs> days ago. And we're, they were, they already filmed like most of the whole script and, and, and who was the fucking director? And I didn't even know it. Bob Clark, Bob Clark's wow. last movie was that. And so as soon as Rolf actually told me, I was like, wait a second. I, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just a grunt. I'm, I don't even pay attention. I'm not even paying attention. I was like, holy fuck. So I got to talk, talk to his AD. I got to talk to his son. And his son and him both perished uh, within a month or two after that uh, in that in that drunk driving car accident. Yeah. yeah, in the middle of, uh, of post-production in that movie. And they took his name so, off the movie. They did? They, they did? Off the movie? Because it was a Canadian movie and he'd lost his residency because he was living in L.A. So uh, they were subscribing content. So they wanted to get the $2 million back for the investment for the producers, they took his name off of the last movie ever directed. Yeah, it's all seem very Canadian. It's okay. horrible. Ugh. I always thought Super Baby Geniuses Two was his last movie. So no, it's Blonde and Blonder. Blonde, Blonde. Wow. Blonde and Blonder. Yeah, and 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 Rolf didn't even know that the film was filming until he he heard that it was film like filming reshoots in L.A. and that's where I was. Well, I, I heard a couple days into production because oh, you did okay. They didn't buy the. It was script. Canada. They had optioned the script and they hadn't purchased it. And literally we could shut the film down. It was like an $8 million film that I could have stopped because my lawyer, then they finally did pay me. They they didn't pay me. They they Uh forgot to pay the writer. And I was like, you optioned it. You didn't buy it. You're making the movie now. What, you know, it was very bad producers in that one. Yes. Very, very Uh corrupt. You know, (laughs) the director who took the name has two different names. He has a different name for director. He's a different name for producer. So when you know, when you have Uh different aliases, you're Uh you're getting some, uh, (laughs) Some sleazy uh, things. Yeah, so Josh, uh, and you, you, we have about uh, two minutes left here. Uh, anything you want to say about producers and, and, and the, the way that their world can be make your world better? Um, I mean, recapping, I guess, kind of what we talked about a while ago in the conversation. I just think, I mean, as we were noting, what Buzz was saying, there's so many different 
types of producers and things they're doing on the movie. But for anybody whose kind of career goal is to be a Neil Moritz style, like, like you just want to be a producer, you want to be one of the best, you want to yeah. rise to that level where maybe normal people even know your name. Granted, normal people really only know actors, barely even know directors, and that's usually it. It's crazy for a famous screenwriter. It's almost not a thing that exists. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to be a good producer, I think it's... Uh, I remember a long time ago, uh, somebody explained the reason that you should baby actors, because that's something everybody complains about, is, oh, divas, and just like, all of a sudden, the actors was like, well, think of it this way. It's like, they're on screen. Yeah. If one of the grips had a bad day, Nobody knows because their work, their attitude is not showing up on screen. An actor is, they have to have it going on. So if you just put up with their bullshit mm -hmm. as much yeah. as you need to get it up on screen, that's the important thing. But I think from a producing standpoint, that really trickles down to all the departments. And like Rolf was saying about that horrible notes draft with all the colors and stuff. Mm. It's like the thing you don't want to do like just super short example. I was working on something where we had two producers, same company, but you know, there's just a bunch of producers. We had two in our project and like uh, the studio was hounding us to get the draft in super early. Uh, and one of the producers was clearly in a panic because the studio was calling them. Like we didn't talk directly with the studio. Yeah. So they're getting pressure that they need to apply to us and she was like letting us know the level of pressure she was under, which was stressing us out. Mm -hmm. And then just randomly in the thread, one of the other producers chimed in with, uh, don't worry about it. We'll handle it. And that was uh, all it took to calm us down. And yeah. I think that's what a producer needs to do because to a certain extent, and I think it's why producers don't get some of the credit they should is that they're doing that thing that nobody understands. Like it's not, I don't want to say it's not creative, but it's not it's not a department you can easily wrap your head around, which is why they can just keep endlessly giving out credits yeah. to just anyone who does anything, because it's not an easily identifiable thing. But I think the thing is, you're in charge of fucking getting this movie made, and part of that should be calming everyone down yeah yeah so that they can do their fucking job and you're the one freaking out well you, yeah you, yeah you need everybody doing the best job they exactly can. and people can't so do that can, when they're freaking out yeah and you need to be able to deliver the best product you can and so you get the best product if your people are happy and if there's a bunch of infighting and people are you know it is you're right it's our job to kind of step in and be like okay everyone calm down you shut the fuck up. You shut the fuck up. When you have a problem, come to me. When you have a problem, come to me, and I will filter it, and we'll talk. And now you guys never have to talk to each other. That's sometimes not the best way to deal with confrontation, but in film, a lot of rules kind of fly out the window in terms of how you're supposed to handle you know, stuff like that because you have to be like, I cannot fire this person per their contract. I cannot fire you because you brought in these actors uh, and so your guys' shitty attitudes are going to have to, you know, we're going to have to be able to stand it. Um, you know, unfortunately, that has led to some pretty awful stuff happening in the industry. <laughs> uh, that's that's why a lot of this shit has happened is because you can't get rid of the executive producer for sexually harassing because then the movie falls apart and then you yeah. don't have a job and then everyone, everything goes away. 
so that's you know that goes back to like we need a more a better insurance policy where we can come in and say no no, no i don't care i've shot half the movie with you actor a you just you know sexually harassed that person now you're fired and the insurance company is going to give us x amount of dollars to reshoot all of your scenes bye-bye you have no more power anymore yeah take your movie away yeah all right, so uh, I want to thank all of you, Buzz, Rolf, and Josh. This is a, was a pretty badass episode of the uh, podcast, so I want to thank all of you for that. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uh, a, a lot of people learning a lot from uh, what we are discussing today. So thank you all, and I hope to see you guys soon. Uh, I don't know when. Who's gonna Who's gonna Who's gonna be the one that likes breaks the breaks the rules and throws the party? I'm having a party oh, right now. You guys are welcome to come over. Yeah, all right. Let's do it. All right. I'm doing it. All right. Thank you, guys. And uh, we're out. Thanks, Thanks Christian. All right. Thank you all for listening to My Favorite Horror Movie. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and catch our videos on YouTube. All of those links and ways to pick up our books are at MyFavoriteHorrorMovie.com. My Favorite Horror Movie is a Black Vortex Cinema production. Thank you all. We'll see you soon, evil ones.